This last book of the Bible predicts worldwide disasters, the Antichrist, the false prophet. And in chapter 17 and 18, a mysterious person or system called the Great Harlot. There have been many guesses as to who it or she is, as well as the Antichrist and the false prophets. So this morning, I'm going to try to unravel this. It is not an easy section. I will admit, I still don't understand some of these mysterious clues as to what the great harlot is. But we'll go through it verse by verse, and then I'll probably answer a question most of you are thinking about. Who is this? What will it be? Well, I'll give you my interpretation, and then... To close, three practical lessons for us. Verses 1 to 6, one of the angels introduces the great harlot to John and says, Come and I will show you the judgment of this harlot that sits on many waters and with whom the kings of the earth committed fornications and the inhabitants of the earth were drunk with the wine of her fornication. Not a good introduction, not a good character. Now, this is symbolic. It's not an individual person. It stands for some kind of system, specifically one that is religious in nature and is worldwide, but also, using the figure of a prostitute, it will be spiritually immoral. And in the Bible, that refers not just to physical immorality, but spiritual immorality idolatry, and blasphemy. So the angel gives various clues that mystify John and mystify us and certainly the interpreters. But we will look at these clues. Look at verse 2. It says that um, she has done this fornication, this immorality with the kings of the earth. In other words, this system has much influence in the political realm and they are using each other and that often happens in high politics they use one another and then when they're finished they knife him or her in the back and throw them out like garbage and they break treaties and promises and that's the skullduggery that's predicted worldwide with the antichrist and you could say his mistress this great harlot mystery babylon But it's not just the high and mighty, as it says here, the kings, but it says the inhabitants of the earth. Not just the high and mighty, but the lowly common people all around the world. Just like the Antichrist will be the king of the world that everybody follows, of course, except Christians. But they will also follow this great harlot, this great whore, the prostitute that is the mistress of the Antichrist. And it says that she made them all drunk with the wine of her fornication. That's a metaphor used earlier in this book. As if to say idolatry and false worship can be intoxicating like alcohol or like immorality. Verse 3 describes her as a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. And the beast here is the Antichrist. So she's riding it, but he is carrying her wherever he wants to go. It's a beast, a scarlet one, and it says it's uh, filled with, she's filled with names and blasphemies. 
like the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2 in the book of Daniel, this Antichrist figure will be worshipped, but he claims to be the one true God and leads away from the one true God, and he blasphemes that one true God. Interesting where it says she's full of names and names on her forehead. Um, scholars have shown that during the time of the Roman Empire, when John wrote this, uh, prostitutes was, was, were legal, but they all had their name emblazoned on their forehead. I don't think they do it today. They don't advertise it quite like that. But back then, that was the way they would uh, draw their customers. And uh, this is in keeping with ancient religions, not just Roman religion, but Baal worship of the Canaanites and then the Greeks, the Babylonians. They had temple prostitutes that would lure people with immorality into this idolatry. And that's what this great harlot will do at the end of history. It says seven heads and ten horns, which means much international power and influence and importance, like a beast that has seven heads and all these horns that stand for political power. Verse 4, she's arrayed or dressed in purple and scarlet. Now, if you know your Bible, as well as ancient history, uh, purple and scarlet garments were very wealthy, very expensive. You couldn't buy them down at the local... um, Walmart, this would be the Saks Fifth Avenue, for example, in the book of Acts. Lydia was a maker of purple garments. She was very wealthy, would sell them to royalty. And also, Luke 16 describes this wealthy unbeliever that was arrayed in purple garments. And then these two colors of purple and uh, scarlet were weaved together in that gown that was given to Jesus to mock him to say oh you're a king we'll give you a kingly garment with purple and scarlet verse 4 also she says that she is dressed with a lot of gold and precious stones and pearls which describes her allurements to people come with me and enjoy my immorality this is what life is about verse 4 also says in her hand is a golden cup full of abominations and filthiness. Earlier it says the wine of her immorality. This is, in a way, the sort of person that is glorified today, immoral and blasphemous, lives a filthy, profane life. But in God's point of view, this is an evil woman, and this stands for a system that will lure people into spiritual immorality, that is, false worship. Verse 5 and this is very interesting. It says, on her forehead a name was written together with these other names. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. In the Bible, mystery stands for uh, a secret that is gradually being revealed. And so the angel is saying, she's a mystery, but I'm giving you clues as to who she is. She is Babylon the Great. The mother of harlots. Now, when it says Babylon, of course, if you know your Bible, Babylon is mentioned several times in the Bible. Would you know the first reference? The Tower of Babel. That's where Babylon began, and that was one of the earliest, if not the earliest, false religion. Genesis 11, where people that did not want to follow the worship 
taught by Noah and Methuselah and other godly people. They said, we're going to build a tower up to heaven and make a name for ourselves. And God destroyed the temple and, and scattered them everywhere and changed their languages. But that was the beginning of Babel, Babylon, and the city of Babel, the country of Babylonia. And then later, a, a wicked man named Nimrod set up a kingdom there. And this was being the Fertile Crescent of ancient Mesopotamia. They went to war with Assyria. They conquered Assyria. For, so for a long time, Babylon was the world's strongest empire. And then Jews were conquered and dragged off as slaves in Babylon. And so this future Babylon will be similar to that. False religion, a worldwide kingdom, and an enemy of God's people. Next it says she's the mother of harlots. Now that just doesn't mean the greatest of all harlots. It means the one from which all spiritual harlotry has come. The mother of all false religion. And that during this great tribulation it all coalesces in this worldwide religion that everybody follows the religion of mystery Babylon and antichrist worship. Everybody will fall for this except God's people. It's all abominable to God, as it says here. The mother of the abominations of the earth. Abomination means something that's ugly, filthy, and disgusting to God. But of course, to fallen mankind, it's anything but abominable. It's very attractive, like an alluring prostitute. Verse 6 says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. Now, we've mentioned that earlier, how... She's drinking this, and God says, you've shed blood, you will now drink blood. And she is drunk on the blood of the martyrs. And God says, you will be drunk with my wine of my wrath one day. And so, like Antichrist, this great harlot uh, slays thousands, perhaps millions, of Christians during the Great Tribulation. It says, saints and martyrs. Now, that's the first introduction, and... John doesn't understand it all. He says, verse 6, I saw her, I marveled with great amazement, like this is going to happen? What does it mean? Later, John says to the angel, what do these things mean? And the angel says, well, I'm asking you, what does it mean? The angel knows, but John doesn't. And so verses 7 to 18, the angel has to give more clues. Verse 7, the angel said to me, why are you marveling? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the seven horns and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. In other words, you see him. He is, he was, he's going to come back again. I'm sure John wonders, well, what does that mean? But look where it says that this beast, and of course that's another word for the Antichrist, chapter 13, the beast. The Antichrist is like a wild animal. And it says he comes up out of the bottomless pit and then goes to perdition. What does this mean? Bottomless pit is described later in Revelation is another term for hell. It's an abyss. It's a very deep hole. It's a pit. And it's like a bottomless pit that has no bottom and people go there and never get out. But this Antichrist comes out of there. He's inspired by the devil, but he will go back there. It says he goes to perdition, which is another word for destruction and doom. And so 
this beast that carries the, the scarlet woman on his back comes out of hell and leads her and himself back to hell and leads people there as well. It says, all those that dwell on the earth will marvel like you, John. But instead of being repelled like you, they will follow the beast and the scarlet prostitute. Now, let's dwell for a few minutes on the second half of verse 8. Because this is somewhat mysterious, but very powerful. And you might say, does this mean what it looks like it says? Those that dwell on the earth will marvel and will follow her. Their names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they see the beast that was and is and, and yet is. It says here their names are not in the book of life. Now later the book of life will be opened up at the last judgment, chapter 20. What is this business about the book of life? Now it's again symbolic. There's not an actual book with a leather cover like a Bible and with pages and ink on it. No, this stands for God's registry of all those that he has chosen and predestined to be saved, and it includes all those that the Bible calls the elect. When was it written? From the foundation of the world, it says here. In other words, back in eternity, God predestined everything that will happen in history. Everything will be exactly as planned, kind of like program a computer. You put the program in, you push a certain set of buttons, and then it comes out exactly as programmed. God predestined everything, including names in the book of life. Those that will be saved are those that have been predestined to be saved. It's like a registry or making a reservation when you travel and you make a reservation to stay in a certain motel. And so it says here that certain names have been written down and certain names are not written down. At the last judgment, God will open the book of life and just simply read out the names of those that had been predestined in eternity and saved in time. All those predestined in the book of life will be saved, them and no others. And then he'll look at the registry and one by one lost sinners will appear and say, or is your name here? It is not. You are not predestined. And in time you did not believe in Christ. Therefore, as it says, those whose names are not in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Another term for hell. Here it mentions those that are not written in the book of life that was composed back in eternity. Now there are several misunderstandings about this verse and including what it means to be written in the book of life. There are those that say, well, it's not written by God back in eternity, it's written in time, and when you get saved, you write your name in the book of life. Years ago, I was in a church that uh, had this unusual interpretation. At the end of the message, the preacher gave the altar call and says, come forward and write your name in the book of life by believing in Jesus. Well, I think he meant well, but he's got the Bible wrong. It's not us that write our name. It's God that writes the name. And not only that, it's not written when we believe. It's written there from before the foundation of the world. Look at this here. It's what it says. Now, 
According to the Bible, God had three choices. God could have chosen everybody and written everybody's name in the book of life. Or he could have written nobody's name because we're all guilty sinners and God was under no compulsion to save us. And the third option is God could have written some sinners' names. And that's what we find in the Bible. He didn't choose everybody. He didn't choose nobody. He chose some, and the Bible calls them the elect. This is the great biblical doctrine of predestination, such as in Ephesians 1, Romans 8, Romans 9, and several other places. So God wrote down the names of some, look at the text, but not everybody's name. There are some people whose names were never written there and never will be written there. These are ones that we would call the non-elect, those that die lost and go to hell. Why? Because they were never chosen. And although the gospel was presented to them, they chose not to believe. And so their doom is in the lake of fire. Now, in my book on Calvinism, I discuss this and I say, well, to use theologian's license, I would say this. If there is a book of life for the elect that will be saved, you could say there is a book of death for the non-elect, the reprobate, that will not be saved. And so at Judgment Day, one book is opened and all those are those that are saved and their names show that they go to heaven. And the other book is opened and say they are not written in the book of life but in the book of death and they are lost because they never repented and believed in Christ. The point is, God did not choose everybody. And those that are not chosen They don't argue with God about this. They don't want to be saved. They want to follow the beast, the Antichrist. They want to follow their sins. They do not want to repent. It's not like they're feeling this isn't fair. God is absolutely fair. So it says here, all these that are not in the book of life will follow the great harlot and the Antichrist. And of course, those are simply messengers of the devil. And then following them, they follow the devil all the way to eternal perdition as it says here, they go to hell. What about those whose names are in the book of life? It says earlier, they follow the lamb wherever he goes and they follow him all the way to heaven. Their eternal destiny has been predestined. And those are the only two books, as it were, the only two destinies, the only two kinds of people in the world. Those that follow the devil or those that follow Christ. The Antichrist or the true Christ? Do you know if your name is in the book of life? Or in the book of death? Do you know if you're one of the elect or one of those that have not been elected? Or are you in Christ's book of life or the devil's book of death? Make sure before you die. Because when you die the doom is sealed. There's no second chance Make sure. How? By right now, while you're still alive and have the opportunity, repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Though the Bible talks about the mystery of predestination, we cannot uh, pry into that. Our responsibility is to believe the gospel that is presented to us. And it's a, a free offer and God commands us to repent and believe. And when you repent and believe... You were saved, and as we'll see in a few minutes, then you can learn the secret that your name was written in the book of life. Make sure. 
Let's move on to the next verse. As deep as that subject is, we're getting back to this deep subject of this mysterious great harlot, verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue just a short time. The beast that was and is and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Does that make sense? I still don't know what that means. I have read, read, read on this, and I'm inclined in a certain direction. I'll mention that in just a few minutes. But this is mysterious, even though clues are given here. It says ten horns, and in the Bible that means ten kings. And these kings, it says in verse 13, agree to give their power and authority to the beast. So what it does say more explicitly here. Uh, is that when the Antichrist beast arises, these other kings of the world, the other empires, they all form a coalition and they lay it at the feet of this Antichrist as if to say, we are just princes in your kingdom, you are the ruler. And so they give him their power and now the beast solidifies his international empire together with this uh, scarlet prostitute. They give their evil powers. And it also says, verse 14, these, who, these kings that follow the beast, they will make war with the lamb. That's Jesus. And the lamb will overcome them. Now that's, in a way, the the history of mankind. Various empires want to rule the world and snatch the crown away from Jesus, saying, we don't want him to be our king. Or as Jesus once said, the words of certain unbelieving rebels will say, well, we will not have this man to reign over us, but the time will come they will say to the Antichrist, you come and reign over us. In John, I forgot what chapter it is, I think it's chapter 5, Jesus talking to the Pharisees said, you know, I, come in my, I don't come in my own name and you don't believe, but one is coming one day who comes in his own name and you will follow him. And they probably wondered, what's that all about? It says that they will not follow the true Messiah. Those that do not follow the Christ will follow the Antichrist. So in history, they don't want to believe in the true Christ or God's true prophets. They follow false prophets. And eventually this will all coalesce in following the Antichrist beast. But they'll go to war with him. But who do you think wins? Look at the verse here. The lamb will overcome them. He's greatly outnumbered. But so what? He's the lamb. He's God in the flesh. And it says here, he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Look at that phrase. This is clear proof that Jesus Christ is God. Do you hear us, Jehovah's Witnesses? They deny that Jesus is God. This is one of at least 100 proofs in the Bible that Jesus is God. Look at this with both sets of eyes. It says, he is king of kings, lord of lords. There's only one that deserves that title, and that's God Almighty. Back in the Old Testament, it says God is king of kings. It says he is lord of lords. He says he is God of gods. Now, when it says of kings and of lords, that's the Hebrew superlative, like Holy of holies means the most holy. Song of songs, the best song. Vanity of vanities, the most vain. 
King of kings means he's the greatest king. Lord of lords, he's the greatest Lord. That can only be God. That's found in 1 Timothy 6 and later in Revelation 19 and elsewhere. Jesus is this. That is an absolutely clear proof. The Bible says Jesus Christ is God. But the Antichrist thinks he is God. He disapproves of the one true God and he sets himself up as the real God. And during his heyday of his empire before Jesus topples it, he boasts that he is the king and he proves it by killing the Christians. If, he, if their God is the true God, he would defend them. And so he boasts. Others have done this. Whether they call themselves Caesar or Pharaoh or the Fuhrer. Or there was one in the middle 20th century that actually had the arrogance to claim to himself the title King of Kings. He was the King of Persia, better known as the Shah of Iran. Ask our brother from the Middle East, he'll say, oh yes, when I was a boy, they all, he sat on the peacock throne there in Tehran, Iran, and had a crown with the name on the King of Kings. And then... Of course, you know the rest of the story, if you're old enough to remember. He had to flee when the Ayatollah Khomeini came to power, and he then contracted cancer, and he died a horrible, painful death, some king of kings. But the true king of kings, the Lord of lords, has a kingdom that will never topple. It says he is Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. And then his followers are described in the last part of verse 14. Look at this. Those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. The Bible uses a lot of terms to describe Christians. Three times they're called Christians. Over a hundred times they're called disciples. They're called believers and children of God and in many other terms. Look at these three here. They are called. Now, there is a, a general calling to give to everybody. Jesus said many are called, few are chosen. But this is talking about the special call. Uh, the Bible calls it, quote, a holy calling. It's effective. It's always efficacious. Those that are called in this way are always saved. It's an irresistible calling. If you are a Christian, you are called. You are irresistibly called out. Jesus said he is the good shepherd and he calls to his, his sheep and he says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Secondly, it says they are the chosen. These are the ones who are in the book of life, they've been elected and they have been predestined. Elected simply means chosen by God. Many are called, but few are chosen. And thirdly, it says here they are faithful. That means they have faith in Jesus and they continue to be faithful to him. And the Bible describes Christians in many other ways, but these are three delightful descriptions. Let me ask you, are you one of the called? Are you one of the chosen? Are you one of the faithful? And you might say, how can I know if I am? It's like, how can I know if my name's in the book of life? Well, let me just very briefly show you so Put the bulletin in Revelation 17 and turn back a few pages to 2 Peter chapter 1, where two of these terms are used. Here's Peter writing to believers. And then in verse, chapter 1, verse 10, he says, Therefore, brethren, 
be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. If you do these things, you will never stumble. So this gives the lie to those that say you can never know if you've been truly called. You can never know if you're truly a Christian. And you certainly cannot know if you are one of the elect that's been predestined. No, no, look at this verse. He says, be diligent, as if to say, well, some don't know because they're not diligent enough. But if you're diligent, I can show you how you can make sure you've been called and you are elect. Look at the word sure. You can be sure of this. How? Well, he has just described earlier these great Christian virtues, uh, verses 5, 6, and 7. So how can a person know if he's one of the elect? It's not as hard as you might think. Now, some people, they have strange views. Well, I know I'm one of the elect because my mother says so, or my preacher. No, I could be wrong, and I'm not about to say I know who is one of the elect. And the Spurgeon says God doesn't print the word elect on your forehead or on your back. He doesn't hang a sign, and he doesn't send an angel saying, yeah, I know you're one of the elect. How do we know that one of the, one of the elect? We're to examine ourselves, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. So before you try to find out if your name's in the book of life and you're elect, find out if you are now saved. How do you know if you're saved? Do you believe the true gospel? If you do not believe the true gospel, that's proof you're not yet saved. All those that are saved believe the true gospel. All those that truly believe the gospel are saved. And secondly... Do you truly trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? And I didn't say, do you just simply admit in your mind, yeah, I know he's the son of God and so forth. No. Do you truly trust in him as Lord, Savior, and Master of your life? Have you repented of your sins? And I don't mean, have you just felt sorry that you got caught doing some sin? Are you truly repentant of your sins? Have you been born again? And here's what Peter's pointing to here. You make your calling election sure by looking to see, do you have these Christian virtues mentioned in verses 5 to 7? Examine your lifestyle. Do you truly long after godliness? Do you love holiness? Do you hate sin? Do you love God? Do you feel at home with the people of God? Do you have the fruit of the Spirit? Examine yourselves to see, do you have these evidences of a holy life? That is evidence that you are a true Christian. It cannot be successfully counterfeited by any non-Christians. So by examining yourself to see, do you believe the true gospel? Do you truly believe in Jesus? Do you truly repent of sin? Then you see, yes, I have these evidences that I am now saved. What's that got to do with knowing you're one of the elect? The second step, step is a lot easier than the first. Once you have deduced biblically, yes, I am or probably am a true Christian... Then you realize what the Bible says, if I am a true Christian, I was predestined to be a true Christian because only Christians are in the book of life and all those in the book of life. So if I'm now a Christian, that proves I was chosen to be a Christian. I was predestined. Want a little bit more icing on the pie? You can not only deduce backwards into eternity, but deduce forward. If you were predestined to be saved, you were also predestined to be glorified. Look that up in Romans 8, 29 and 30, the golden unbreakable chain. Those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorifies. Not only that, if you now know that you are saved, 
You have the absolute promise of the word of God. You will always be saved. He loves you too much to let you go. If you were saved, you will always be saved. So you see, you start in the here and now, deduce back, and then fast forward. Isn't that lovely? God doesn't want his people to wallow in doubt. He wants them to be assured. Be diligent to make your call an election. Sure, go back to Revelation. And now you can look at this verse and say, Yes, I know I'm not perfect, but I true, do truly believe I am one of the called, chosen, and faithful. Let's get back to the mystery. You're still wondering, how am I going to identify this great harlot? Verse 15, then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Now, chapter 5, verse 9, and chapter 7, verse 9 also say there's another company of people that come from every tribe, nation, all around the world, just like the phrase here. Except in those two verses, it's describing Christians from all around the world. This verse is describing non-Christians from all around the world. It says peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And then here come the politicians and the rulers again, verse 16. And the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. In other words, it's just a temporary agreement to work together. They're going to turn on the great harlot. <coughs> just like the Antichrist will say, I've used you and I don't need you anymore. You gave your power to me and I don't need you. And he throws her out like garbage. Just like certain other nations in history make treaties and then later break those same treaties to further themselves. For example, 1939, Nazi Germany signed a binding treaty with the Soviet Union, a non-aggression pact. And of course they said what's between Russia and Germany is Poland. You get the eastern part, we get the western part, and they carved it up. And then in June 1941, Hitler tore up that treaty and invaded Russia, which was his plan all along. He made a treaty in order to break it, and that's what the Antichrist will do here with this scarlet prostitute. Others have made treaties, and unfortunately they end up breaking because they say it's, we can't keep this anymore even though they wanted to. That was, an, uh, that was kind of a secret a lot of people didn't realize about the failure of the Vietnam War. Did you know that? Way back before we even sent in troops, even before Kennedy became president, we signed a treaty called CETO, S-E-A-T-O, Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, comparable to NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And we were bound to defend South Vietnam against North Vietnam. And then when the tide turned, during the Nixon administration said, we can't keep this anymore. And so we pulled out. In effect, we broke a treaty. At the beginning of our nation, George Washington, our first president, said, Beware of unnecessary binding treaties that you may not be able to keep. So here we find the Antichrist and these kings of the earth tearing up the treaty, as it were, and throwing the great harlot out, saying, We've used you, you've gave power to us, we don't need you anymore. So they break the treaty, and I'm sure this great harlot crumbles after that, and we'll look at the, her downfall in the next chapter. Now look at verse 17 for another mysterious verse, just like the one about the not being in the book of life. Verse 17. 
For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. In other words, they give their kingdoms to the beast, they throw out the scarlet woman. Why? From their point of view, they say, we're doing this to to bring about the final culmination of the Antichrist's uh, kingdom. But what about the first part of this? They do this in fulfillment of what God is doing. God put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose. What's the purpose? The rise of the Antichrist kingdom, which he himself will later topple. But look at this very closely. Now, the Bible does not say God is the author or approval of evil. He commands righteousness and condemns evil. And yet, this is a deep mystery. Being sovereign... He sometimes takes the restraints off of sin. And as it says here, he puts it into their hearts to fulfill his evil purposes. They want to do evil. It's like what it says in the Old Testament. They meant it for evil. God means it for good. This is part of God's ultimate purpose to bring about the downfall of the devil and the Antichrist. So he allows that to enter into their hearts, just like 2 Thessalonians 2. The rise of the man of sin, the Antichrist there, it says God will send them a lying delusion. And yet God cannot be blamed for this. They can be blamed for this because they willingly comply with this. And by contrast, God positively puts it into the hearts of the elect not to submit to the Antichrist, but to submit to the Christ. This is a difficult verse, but we dare not misinterpret it. God is still sovereign even over his evil enemies. Lastly, verse 18, and the woman whom you saw, this great prostitute, is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Here's another clue. Earlier it says this woman, this evil system, sits on seven hills. And here it says it's that great city. What, is, what city would that be? Well, I'll tell you what John immediately thought that is. Rome. The center of the Roman Empire, just like Babylon, the center of the Babylonian Empire. And it says, that woman that you saw is that great city that reigns over the kings of the earth. That's probably the most clear clue as to her identity. Now, the angel gives clues, but he doesn't give a specific identification. This is as close as he gets, but of course it's not... A clear identification. He doesn't come right out and say it's Roman. Let me tell you the name of the Antichrist. And by the way, nobody, to my knowledge, has come forward, either a person or an empire, saying, I am that great prostitute. And nevertheless, Christians for centuries, probably ever since John wrote this, have guessed as to who this great harlot is, who who it is or what it is. Let me just briefly mention the six most popular ones. For most of the last 2,000 years, probably the most popular one is that this is talking about the Roman Empire during John's day. And that these various uh, horns and uh, kings are talking about various emperors in John's day and to come. Because they say the Roman Empire was seated in Rome and in ancient literature and even today... They describe Rome as the city on seven hills. Some of y'all have been to Rome. You'll see it in the tourist brochures, the city of seven hills. I've been to Rome. Yes, there are seven 
hills. It says that Mystery Babylon persecutes Christians. Roman Empire did that. It was international, at least as so far as Europe and the Middle East was concerned. And so some say it's talking about the Roman Empire then, but the Roman Empire doesn't exist anymore. Book of Revelation is talking about a period right before the second coming. Consequently, some say there will be a revived Roman Empire. And so you may have heard speculation that the revived Roman Empire will be the uh, European Union and NATO, and that's a revived Roman Empire. Another suggestion is the Roman Empire fell in 476, and it was succeeded by something called the Holy Roman Empire. Historians get a uh, giggle out of that because they say Holy Roman Empire wasn't holy. It wasn't seated in Rome, and it certainly wasn't an empire. But some have suggested that's what's predicted. Secondly, another suggestion, very minority view, is that this isn't talking about Rome, but talking about apostate Israel centered in Jerusalem, and they'll say, but wait a second, Hosea, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah all describe Israel as the wife of God that's also adulterous and getting into spiritual immorality called idolatry. And ancient Israel did slay many of God's true prophets. They were responsible for the death of their Messiah and many of the early Christians, and that brought about their punishment in 70 AD. That sounds convincing, except for several reasons. First, Jerusalem is never called Babylon. Rome is, but not Jerusalem. The harlot has this international influence, but Israel has never had it, and I doubt it ever will have it again. And yet, you could say that Israel... um, until it turns to Jesus as their true Messiah, according to Romans 11, they are like an adulterous wife that has many privileges, but she is like a harlot in God's sight. So I'm persuaded this isn't talking about Israel. You could say Israel is a Babylon, but not the final mystery Babylon. Third one is that this is talking about a literal Babylon that will be revived again in the last days. Now, this became popular in the 1990s during the war between the United States and modern Babylon called Iraq. For example, Charles Dyer of the Moody Bible Institute wrote a best-selling Christian book called The Rise of Babylon and said that here we're seeing with Saddam Hussein, mystery Babylon coming alive and it'll be a worldwide kingdom and then Of course, Saddam Hussein later died, and I think Charlie Dyer wondered if his book was really that accurate. No, modern-day Iraq is not ancient Babylon come again with a worldwide empire. Yes, it is geographically Babylon, but I don't think that Iraq today is mystery Babylon. Number four, and this is the view that was unanimous amongst the early Protestants and all the Puritans and many today, that the clue here is it's seated in Rome, and they say this is a prophecy of the rise of Roman Catholicism. And that when the Roman Empire fell, it didn't continue mainly in the so-called Holy Roman Empire, but in Roman Catholicism, that the crown of the emperor was then transferred to the Pontifex Maximus, the pope who had an empire for centuries throughout Europe and it spread around the world. Not everybody follows it, but it was a truly international religion. And the Protestants and Puritans also argued that 
Well, Catholicism is an adulterous and idolatrous form of apostate Christianity. It colluded with the Roman Empire after it became the official religion in 313 A.D., and perhaps they say it will one day be involved with the final great harlot. Perhaps. I come close to accepting this, but not quite. I would say Roman Catholicism is a Babylon but not necessarily the final Babylon. The fifth suggestion we can very quickly dismiss, maybe you've heard various cults say this is a prediction of the United States. Okay, cults, TV and radio and internet prophecy experts say this is a prophecy of the United States, and other ones mingle it with a strange form of a theory called British Israelism, we needn't go into it. I think we can safely ignore it and avoid it. Uh, I have been asked in the past, is the United States in biblical prophecy? And I'd say, not as far as I know. Um, It could be, but I've never been convinced of that, and the only people promoting this are of dubious orthodoxy. By the way, the same also applies to people that think this is a prophecy, not of the United States, but of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And yet, it's possible the United States would be involved in the Antichrist kingdom because he marshals all the kingdoms of the earth, which would include the United States. So I would say the United States, like Roman Catholicism, is a Babylon, but not necessarily the final Babylon. Look at the rise of false religion and immorality and other things describing mystery Babylon and see some of that is in the United States. The sixth one, I think, is closest to the truth. I've kept you waiting. Let me tell you what my interpretation is, and it's a very popular one. Remember when we looked in chapter 13 about the Antichrist, the beast, we also looked in 1 John where it says, Little children, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now there are many Antichrists. See where I'm going with this? There will be one great mystery Babylon, great harlot, But before then, there will be many others like that, such as the Roman Empire, apostate Israel, Roman Catholicism, and others that will eventually culminate in the final one, of which these others are like forebearers preparing the way. I think that just like there will be the final one Antichrist, there have been Antichrists before that, and that there will be one final kingdom of Antichrist Riding, on, riding together with this great harlot, this religious system that will give power and authenticity to the Antichrist kingdom. But it will only be temporary. The Antichrist will throw her out when he's used her and doesn't need her anymore. And we'll see more about her doom in the next chapter. That's my interpretation. I'm not infallible. I'm certainly not a prophet. But this is a popular interpretation today. Let's get three practical and spiritual applications. Number one, whatever this final uh, international anti-Christian political and religious system will be, we are warned in the Bible not to be part of it. When it arises, Christians will see it for what it is and will get away from it. Chapter 18, come out of her, my people. The same thing applies to any kind of Babylonian harlotry, 
uh, international system that is ungodly. Christians should not get lured into it. It uses the picture of a prostitute that can be very alluring, just like anything else that's sinful. Christians need to resist it and even run like Joseph did from Potiphar's wife. Avoid any anti-Christian political or religious international system. Avoid it as you would a cheap prostitute. Number two, as we see, they will make war on God and God's people, but God will win. That tells us God still reigns over all the kingdoms of the world, past, present, future. He has predestined everything in history, including the salvation of his elect, the damnation of the non-elect, and the furtherance of his kingdom that will never crumble in contrast with the kingdom of the Antichrist and the scarlet woman. Therefore, as I said, make sure you're one of the elect and called and faithful. Make sure you're on the winning team. Thirdly and lastly, Satan, the Antichrist, the great harlot, and all of their minions will continue to oppose God and Christ and Christians throughout in history and culminating in the battle of Armageddon, but Christ will win. He is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. The devil and the Antichrist are not the equal opposite of Christ and God the Father. They're finite. They're evil. Christ is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He will win. Put it like this succinctly. He wins we win because we belong to him. Satan, the Antichrist, the great heart, they will lose and all their followers will lose as well. One last observation. This is a chapter and also the next chapter about this evil system called a great harlot, a prostitute, someone that's filthy. You could say the middle chapters of Revelation are a contrast between two women. The great harlot and the bride of Christ. Christians belong to one, non-Christians belong to the other. So it's a remarkable contrast. One, as it were, that scarlet woman is the bride of the Antichrist, but Christians belong to the bride of Christ. Which one do you belong to? To whom you belong will tell you about your eternal destiny. Come back next week and we'll look more about the doom of the great harlot. Let's pray. Father, there's still much mystery about these clues as to who or what this will be. But whatever he, it, they shall be, it's evil. And Christians will not succumb to it, even if it faces martyrdom. Thank you, Father, that you have chosen us. You have saved us. And you have made us the bride of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.